Hello, and welcome back to The China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. It's Tuesday, May 16th, and we have three topics to discuss today. The first is the PRC's new special representative on Eurasian affairs, Li Hui, who is traveling this week to Russia as well as to Ukraine and several other European countries. The second is a close-up on the PRC's changing relationship with the Nordic countries and where those countries fit into today's great power competition. And finally, we'll do Miles's take on a recent statement by the PRC's Ministry of Foreign Affairs that accused the United States of preparing to wage genetically engineered biological warfare. Miles, how are you doing? Very good, Wilson. Great. So, Miles, our first topic today is the PRC's new man in Europe. His name is Li Hui, and his title is Special Representative of the Chinese Government on Eurasian Affairs. He was appointed shortly after Xi Jinping's very long postponed call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. And the reason we're talking about him today is that as we speak, Li is on a European tour. He's visiting Ukraine, Poland, France, Germany and Russia. The foreign ministry says that this trip is, quote, a testament to Chinese efforts to promote peace talks and our firm commitment to peace. So, Miles, who is Li Hui and what should we expect from this trip? Li is just one of the uh, minor functionaries under the direct control of Xi Jinping. I mean, obviously, you know, he cannot really deviate uh, a nano inch from uh, whatever the Supreme Leader wants him to, to say and to do. Uh, I think China's relationship with the EU uh, is now in uh, great danger, not because of uh, what China uh, has been very uh, different from the past, but because the Europeans, but because the EU countries right now have a renewed awakening about the China threat. And the EU is something that China always play as a wedge between China and the United States. No longer is the case. Because EU right now is playing a very important role, they have their own definition of the nature of the U.S. Uh, of the uh, EU-China relationship, which is uh, something called a systemic rivalry. Now, um, uh, rivalry are right, but the the key word is systemic. Could be interpreted as uh, the extent, right? It's the it's the coverage. The uh, involves every aspect of the re- EU-China relationship. But um, another way to interpret it is. Uh, political, ideological, uh, systematic, uh, institutional um, rivalry. I asked uh, the uh, EU's uh, chief Asia affair person, uh, Gunnar Wiegand, uh, a couple weeks ago here in Washington, D.C., what uh, does uh, uh, systemic rivalry mean? And he specifically said systemic is uh, institutional, political, and ideological. And that's why China right now is having a problem of playing the European card against the United States. And that's why they, they intensify the diplomatic effort in Europe. That is clearly the, the EU's position. They've put that term that you just described in their strategic documents. However, a concern that some people have is that there's, there's a gap between EU rhetoric, EU positioning. Uh, we had this speech by Ursula von der Leyen a couple of weeks ago talking about de-risking. And then there's the concern, the gap is between EU uh, positioning and national positioning. So there are a lot of countries in Europe that are pretty hawkish on China. You have Lithuania as an example, the UK as an example, the Czech Republic as an example. Over the last few months, though, 
we've seen that Germany and France, talking about strategic autonomy, visiting China with a lot of business leaders, might not be on the same page. Do you think that that's a worry? I don't think that page has been actually written yet. I mean, they have uh, uh, they're trying to write something on different pages, but the uh, the messages have become increasingly clear. You might have some kind of national leaders who say things that China is important, we should not ignore it, which is true. But also, that doesn't necessarily mean that the EU as a whole has changed its uh, uh, definition of systemic rivalry. That position has not changed. As a matter of fact, um, I can give you also other examples. China uh, used to be very, very successful in the last couple of years, particularly before COVID. In Europe, I mean, they had this 17 plus one, right? Mostly Central uh, and Eastern European countries yeah. uh, with uh, trying to try to sort of bring the, China try to bring that sphere uh, into its own orbit. But that's no longer 17 plus one. Three of them has quit, right? Three of them have quit, uh, the three Baltic countries. And then um, European Union uh, also has uh, uh, enhanced its collaboration with NATO. NATO has a much more active role in um, uh, sort of expanding the NATO's uh, um, impact to Indo-Pacific country. Japan, for example, has become very close to NATO right now. Just a couple of days ago, EU uh, convened an Indo-Pacific country forum. They invited a lot of countries, uh, China, uh, Japan, South Korea, Indonesia. The only country of any significance that was not invited was China. So this is a really, really big signal to, to the Chinese uh, uh, regime. And uh, speaking of uh, um, toughening up uh, stance on on China, the EU just a few days ago uh, reached the agreement with the United States on something that's very, very important. That is, uh, US and EU agree on enhancing anti-non-market behavior, uh, and it, which means also to have the joint uh, export control, uh, mostly aiming at China. This is a, not exactly the Cold War like in you know, the Paris uh, Coordination Committee, COCOM, but it's one step very close to that. Uh, you have this upcoming G7, uh, which will be held in Japan, and Europeans have a very strong representation in G7, of course. Uh, but the, the G7 uh, so, uh, primary uh, objective is to diversify supply chain, which means that uh, we're going to lessen. Uh, all the major economies reliance on China. So all in all, I think that you see this uh, formation of a global counter-China alliance. Uh, it's, it's not anti-China, it's counter-Chinese government uh, alliance. So this is, a, this is no longer a just uh, China and the United States. You see uh, EU also has joined the United States. Japan, South Korea, Philippines, of course, in the Indo-Pacific have also been very close to firm up this kind of a formation of quasi um, a coalition of, uh, of democracies. Yeah, and at the upcoming NATO summit in Lithuania, they invited not only, I think it's now 31 NATO allies with the addition of Finland, they also invited Japan and South Korea who came to the Madrid summit last year, and they invited Australia and New Zealand as well, I believe. So why, you talked about it a little bit just now, but why does that matter so much? And what are some tangible ways that this can move beyond summitry and actually lead to real world outcomes in the vein that you just suggested? The most important significance is that China has always trying to sell the world this uh, falsity that uh, all the problem the world is, is suffering from is uh, uh, caused by the United States. Therefore, China has now taken the leadership globally to challenge Americans' leadership, Americans' influence in the world. 
that falsity has failed miserably, as you can see. Um, I just we just talked about this in the last several minutes. There is some kind of global awareness. So China's problem is no longer conceived as a U.S.-China confrontation. Rather, it's a uh, the Chinese model of governance versus the rest of the world. So uh, that's very, very important as a big deal. Um, uh, so we have to understand that the China challenge or China threat is not regional, it's not bilateral, it's multilateral, it's global. And because the model of governance represented by the Chinese Communist Party is danger to us all. And I think you know more and more countries are realizing that. So it doesn't really matter who will be the new representative uh, from the Chinese government to sell their their stories narrative to the world, or what kind of message they, they have. It's really the Chinese government's behavior, the nature of the regime that really speaks volume. So I want to continue this conversation in the second section by talking about how that global competition, that global confrontation is playing out outside of great powers, outside of the G7 countries. And there's there's a reason that I'm doing this that is, that's a little selfish, because as we're recording this uh, conversation right now, normally I record in New York. Today I'm at a conference in Denmark uh, and China is front and center throughout this conference. When I landed uh, in Copenhagen, I saw a big Huawei sign over a public square. And at this conference, this conference is about democracy, there was a sculpture called the Pillar of Shame, which is part of a big series that first launched to commemorate the Tiananmen Square massacre that happened in 1989. So I want to drill down on this part of the world where I am because I can, I can see the competition that you're talking about playing out in front of me. So the Nordic countries, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, and Sweden. How does China view this part of the world? And has this part of the world woken up in the way that you just described? China had this imperial design for the world. Um, China normally view the United States um, is uh, uh, the world hegemon, the word they use. So they're trying to sort of figure out the area where U.S. is not nearly as powerful and so this this uh, this area that uh, China can exploit, Nordic countries uh, was conceived by the Chinese government decades ago as uh, such an area. In the Chinese uh, sort of parlance, they use uh, some kind of fancy scientific word. It's called a terra nullius. In other words, this territory where nobody actually can claim. And they, this is kind of a very noxious uh, concept because it assumes that there's nobody actually uh, there have a sovereign uh, claim in, in the country. You mentioned about Denmark, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, um, and Finland, right? Those are, those are five Nordic countries. That area is also very important uh, not only because of the, the melting of the uh, of the Nordic area uh, uh, paved way for a possible new navigation route that will greatly shorten the, uh, the, the time and distance between Asia market and Europe, but also has strategic uh, importance as well because uh, the Nordic region is where the uh, ICBM would have to pass through in order to, uh, to deter the United States. So this is very important for the Chinese. So they have been trying very hard to penetrate into that, that, uh, com- those countries uh, for a long time. It has not really worked really well because China uh, claims itself is a near Arctic uh, country. You only have like, you know, Arctic country or non-Arctic country. So there is no such thing called a near Arctic country. So China basically tried to play the conceptual game. Yeah, and they're about a thousand miles away, which is not that near. That's right. So China tried to sort of try to march into the Arctic Council. That didn't really really work out very well. Uh, they also have a heavy economic infiltration um, and seen a lot of uh, uh, dominating 
state-sponsored uh, uh, companies to those countries to to squeeze out their national uh, brands. But also, you know, Nordic countries were were known uh, uh, for their nicety. They were nice. They're they're pacifist. But the one by one, China's aggression, aggressive stance in these countries has basically anger uh, <laughs> uh, almost all of the countries, right? So it started with the with the with the Norway. Norway is obviously a very nice country. It's the home of a Nobel Peace Prize each year, precisely because of that. In two thousand nine, the Nobel Prize uh, for Peace was awarded to the Chinese dissident Liu Xiaobo. This basically uh, roused aroused the royal anger from the Chinese government. They created a very nasty diplomatic route there between the two countries. And then Sweden, you couldn't find a nicer country than Sweden in, in most parts of the world. But then the Chinese basically kidnapped one of the Swedish citizens, uh, who is a bookseller uh, based out of Hong Kong. Uh, this gentleman's name is Gui Minghai. I think he's still languishing in the Chinese prison system. Uh, not only that, uh, the, it's the reaction um, uh, to deal with this issue that showed China's uh, imperiousness. And it's very arrogant. Uh, uh, so, uh, so Sweden and China right now are on very bad terms. Yeah, and I wanna I wanna interrupt you now because in this incident, this Swedish bookseller, this you told me about this when it happened, and I I couldn't believe uh, the Chinese reaction to it because there was a there was a Swedish NGO of journalists and writers that awarded Gui Minhai uh, a prize um, after after he was taken, and China's ambassador to Sweden had um, a quote that I think is just like the epitome of wolf warrior diplomacy that he threw out there in response to this like prize being given to this bookseller. It was, quote, and this is from the Chinese ambassador to Sweden, for our friends, we have fine wine. For our enemies, we have shotguns, which you told me about that, and I just couldn't believe it when that came out. Well, this is one of the most popular uh, phrases used by Chinese uh, officials all the time. It started uh, uh, during the Korean War. It was actually created for the Americans. But uh, that has become some kind of you know diplomatic cliche. I mean, the, pro- the proper description of uh, Chinese diplomats is not a wolf warrior. It's Yahoo. <laughs> so let's talk about a little bit more of how these countries matter. We've talked about how China perceives them and its global ambitions, um, how they've woken up. When I think of the Nordic countries, I think a little bit of the niceness that you just talked about, but also um, they're Arctic countries, which means they not only have access to the passages that you talked about, they also have access to critical minerals, rare earths. Um, Nokia and Ericsson are 5G alternatives here um, in this part of the world. So why do these countries matter in a counter-China coalition? What What is their importance from the more Western perspective? Well, those are natural resources, the geographical locations, but also, most importantly, is about the Chinese imperial concept of terra nullius. That is, uh, China is really into the game of ownership. It doesn't want to cooperate with any, any other uh, countries, any other entities. Uh, the first instance of the Chinese government is that I want to own it. Um, you can, you can. This, this kind of a idea, this mentality is reflected in China's uh, attitude towards, say, a global energy uh, uh, market. Right? They don't want to trade. They want to buy and sell. They want to own the production chain. Uh, you can see this from this, uh, this uh, territorial uh, claims. China has more territorial disputes with the, with the. Country within its neighbors than any other country in the world. It's because China always will try to own it. Uh, uh, so instead of sort of work out a, a good, operable, practical uh, arrangement, 
uh, to deal with the very um, um, historic, historical and complicated issues of territory uh, dispute. So uh, that's one reason why I think in the, in the Nordic country, when China has no particular ownership of any claim, and uh, you have to really stop China from there. China also has a lot of new ideas about the uh, uh, deep sea. They believe there's nobody actually uh, owns anything. And the space, China wants to to carve up some part of the, the celestial kingdom to claim as its own. So this idea that somehow China must own the air territories that nobody actually uh, has claimed, and it's very dangerous. Yeah, I think that's right. So um, I want to close this out with a brief conversation of uh, another quote from Chinese diplomats. I read out the former ambassador to Sweden's quote. Uh, This one came out a few days ago uh, on May 10th from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs itself. It's still up on the Ministry of Foreign Affairs Twitter account. Listeners can go and see it for themselves. But like the quote from the ambassador to Sweden, I thought this was pretty, pretty shocking. The quote, and I'll just I'll just read it out for you, Miles, is The Pentagon has reportedly made plans for hitting opponents with genetically engineered weapons. The genomic data of Asian Chinese, European Aryans, and Middle Eastern Arabs all on a list to be collected by the U.S. military. Um, So, Miles, the PRC in that quote is saying that the U.S. military is planning on hitting its opponents with genetically engineered weapons that would target them by race. Where is this coming from and what does it mean? Several things. Number one, one of the most uh, telling episodes uh, in the last several years uh, since COVID in particular is that uh, the gap between Chinese domestic propaganda and Chinese international propaganda has been greatly narrowed. In other words, for those of us who are familiar with Chinese domestic propaganda, this is nothing new. This is what Chinese government is doing to its domestic population on a daily basis. Rumors, unfunded uh, 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 speculations, and to make it feel very, very real because there's no other source of information. There's no other uh, legal interpretable frame of information. That's why uh, indoctrination in China is very thorough and very, very bad. Now, that model of propaganda indoctrination, a brainwashing, has been brought to the international arena without much of the uh, hesitation in the last several years. That's why it's so shocking to the world that uh, you see this kind of uh, uh, blatant uh, uh, manipulation of information. So, uh, But it's nothing new there. Now, secondly, this, is a fo- this also falls into the pattern of China's uh, mendacity. That is, in every major international conflict, China always spread the rumor, just made up, about the American using chemical and biological weapons, and genetic weapons in this case as well. During the Korean War, China made up the evidence uh, accusing the United States of using biological weapons, and which was uh, totally refuted. Even the Soviet Union at the time, which was 100% behind the Chinese, uh, were embarrassed because the lies were so uh, blatantly uh, porous um, and evident. And of course, uh, China also accused the United States of using uh, chemical and biological weapons uh, in Ukraine, in the ongoing uh, war, I mean, which echo what the Vladimir Putin has been saying. Uh, so you, number three, you were saying about the genetic weapons targeting a specific population. This is exactly what the Chinese People's Liberation Army uh, so biological weapons program is all about. Uh, 
and you can read a lot of writings that uh, some of my colleagues and including myself uh, also have written quite a bit about this particular topic. Chinese government has openly admitted to international biological and chemical uh, convention uh, that they have such weapons. Uh, to be very specific, they have one thing called population-specific genetic marking a weapon. Let me repeat that. Population-specific genetic marking technology to be used specifically in the realm of biological weapons. This is by China. This is by their own writing, right? So uh, this is uh, something that uh, that is very alarming. We, so we should be uh, paying a lot of attention uh, to what the Chinese government is saying. Even when they're lying, they're reflecting um, in a very dubious way the reality of China itself. Sure. And as, as you talked about just now, uh, there was uh, a similar lie that was said uh, during the Korean War in 1952. Uh, and a question that I have about that is, it was it was directed domestically, as you said. So what is the goal of this domestic rhetoric? Like when, when the Chinese government tells the people of China that the U.S. is making weapons like this, or within recent memory, they said that COVID didn't come from Wuhan. It came from a military base at Fort Detrick in Maryland. What are they trying to get the Chinese people to believe? What And does it work? Well, we actually, you know, um, it was not entirely directed for the Chinese audience. In the 1952 case, when China alleged U.S. use of biological weapons in the Korean War, it was actually directed at the international uh, uh, arena. China uh, accused the U.S. Uh, use of weapons through the U.N. forum. And when U.N. forum say, listen, let's investigate, China said, no, you cannot come in. So uh, Very similar to COVID. You can't come in and investigate. Very similar to COVID. If you ask 10 people in China, what is the origin of COVID-19? Nine out of 10 people probably will say Fort District, Maryland, um, uh, USA. That's because that's what the Chinese communist propaganda has been saying this all along. Uh, in the meantime, China never... Uh, has and will allow international inquiry, particularly uh, the WHO team, to investigate uh, without the hindrance. So uh, this is uh, something that's a very, very dangerous, and this falls into a pattern of mendacity, as I see it. Yeah, and it's a it's a pattern to to get used to recognizing, accusing different countries, mostly democratic countries, of behavior, uh, of malign behavior that they themselves are doing. I think that's all that we have time for this week, Miles. Thank you so much uh, for another great conversation. Looking forward to recording a ne- another episode with you next week. Looking forward to it too, Wilson. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. We appreciate Hudson for making this podcast possible. Follow Miles and all of the additional great work we do at Hudson.org. Please remember to rate and review this podcast, and we'll see you next time on The China Insider.